is Dina Saunders-Green, and you're listening to Formally Fostered, brought to you by Green Pines Media. This is a podcast about foster care and children's mental health services, and sometimes the juvenile justice system, mainly because there's a lot of intersection between the three. We give emancipated youth and their allies a place to share their truth. and thank you for tuning in to Formally Fostered. This week we'll be hearing from a 25-year-old former foster youth. Um, I don't know what to say other than she is so incredibly encouraging. It's like she's made it her mission to shoot down every negative stereotype and every negative statistic about former foster youth that she's ever heard. We are going to get right into our interview with our guest talking about how she and her siblings ended up in foster care. My mother and father were both um, addicted to heroin and crack, and crack cocaine. And so there is 16 of us, and I'm number 15 of all my siblings. And we were all split up. And my, my biological parents had custody of some of us for a little while. And then I was taken into foster care um, at a really, really early age because of neglect and abuse and drug use. And I was the only one out of all my siblings to end up in like a foster foster home that wasn't kin gap, so that wasn't like family. And um, I remember being there with another young girl and I remember Ritz crackers, a swimming pool. And I remember sitting, you know, just always being by myself and singing to myself. And I just remember, um, her, like just I was okay with her and I stayed there for a while until um, I was taken out of her care and bounced around from different aunties and uncles on my dad's side of the family I stayed with a few of my aunties and uncles um, before my grandmother got custody over me and five of my other siblings by the time I was in kindergarten uh, I was with my grandmother and so uh, she raised me up until I was emancipated at 18. So she went from being in a traditional foster home where she was fostered by strangers to kinship care. And that's when kids are placed with relatives or sometimes close family friends. Uh, sometimes they're you know, called fictive kin or um, you might hear people say, that's my play family. Uh, that could be a godparent or really any adult who has a relationship with the child's family. Now, I love kinship care, and early in my career, I was a huge proponent. For the most part, I still am. Um, Like, you'll constantly hear me say that we need more family members and more family friends to step up and take care of kids who are in danger of going into the system. And that's because we recognize that kids typically do better when they're able to maintain those connections. In general, when CPS detains a child, they tend to look for relatives and close family friends who will serve as foster parents. Now, I say that kids typically do better, but that's not always the case. Over the past few years, I've had quite a few former foster youth tell me that they did not want to be placed with family. And that's because 
abuse was like part of their family culture. And that wasn't just with their parents. It was with their grandparents, with their aunts, with uncles. So they wanted to be fostered by strangers. That was just a reminder that every situation, every family, every child is different. And we should not be giving them cookie cutter interventions and services. Okay, so getting back to the interview, I asked if anyone had ever told her about her right to request her foster care records or if she had ever seen her case file. Here's what she had to say. You know what? My grandmother was really secretive about us seeing our case files, but I do remember she kept our case files in a, in a drawer in the living room and we didn't, I mean, sometimes I was curious to open it up and when I, whenever I did, all I saw was medical records and stuff like that. But it actually wasn't until recently, my grandmother passed um, last year and we were trying to figure out the funeral arrangements. So we had to go through a lot of her old paperwork and that was the first time, I'm 25, 24 at the time, that was the first time I'd ever seen my case file with every court date my grandmother had to go through. Um, getting me from um, from uh, foster care, um, the condition that I was in from when I was born and having drugs. In, we, we were born with drugs in our system. Like all of that was in detail in our case file. And I, and my grandfather was even, he was, he didn't want me to go through that stuff, but I was trying to help him with the funeral arrangements. And so I was also being nosy at the same time because I was seeing stuff that my grandmother shielded us from for so long. And so last year, 24 years old, that was the first time I ever like got a glimpse of my case file. So she was able to see some of her records, specifically the things that involved her grandmother. I asked that question because I've been meeting more and more young adults in their late 20s and early 30s who want to know their history, but they didn't realize or had never been told that they could request their official records from social services. Now, I try to prepare them and let them know that reading through their file can be really, really tough. So I asked her, what was it like for you reading through your file? Oh my goodness. It was... I, I want to say it was heartbreaking. We were, because it's one thing to, growing up, like my aunties on my dad's side of the family, they told us a lot of stuff. Like they told they told me about the condition that I was in and how, the, how neglected and poorly taken care of we were. So it's one thing to hear it, but it's another thing to see it officially on paper. And it kind of just blew my mind. Um, to see the many times my grandmother had to go to court. And, and I remember being in court sometimes and them asking us, where do you want to go? Who do you want to stay with? Who do you want to live with? Um, I remember that. I remember, you know, being in a cramped little apartment with my mother. My father had custody of us. I remember these like images or whatever, but to see it all in detail from my social, cause social workers, they would, um, they would detail like every visit, every like they would detail everything like from the way we looked from the way we were dressed to the things that we told them and so to see all of that on paper it was just it was heartbreaking but then it made me love my grandmother even more because she went through so much to get custody of us and she didn't have to do that um but it was and then to see like medical official records stating that we were born with drugs in our system wow. i mean that was just like just mind mind-blowing. Our guest was talking about what it was like to see part of her official foster care file. 
files that actually showed that she was born with drugs in her system. I was really glad that she felt comfortable enough to open up because it's not something that people really tend to talk about. There is still so much stigma and shame around it, and she'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh, but the main reason I think it's important to talk about is because there's a lot of misconceptions. For example, years ago, I did an internship at Time for Change Foundation in San Bernardino. They are a fantastic organization that provides housing and supportive services for women who are homeless or who were in prison. It was founded by Kim Carter, who is very open about her personal experience with addiction, which ultimately led to her becoming homeless and eventually uh, becoming incarcerated. Anyway. I remember talking with Kim and basically telling her with all the wisdom of a first year student that babies born with crack in their system would always struggle. Uh, she very patiently smiled and proceeded to set the record straight about how yes, it is very difficult for babies who are born with drugs in their system, but with the right care and the right intervention, they can overcome it and they can thrive. So my question to my guest was, what would you tell people who still have that belief or people who believe that babies born with drugs in their system will always be a burden on society? Here's what she had to say. I would say that is the biggest lie. That is that is the biggest lie. And you know what? We grew up, when, when my grandmother got custody of us, it wasn't easy living in, in that household because my grandfather, whenever he would get upset or anything like that, he would call us really bad names, like crack babies, drug babies. He would, he would say we we're just we're going to be just like our parents and this and that. And to and to grow up constantly hearing that, yes, it can have a, a it can be very very detrimental to a person's development, especially at a young age. But for me, I took every insult every reminder that I was going to be like my parents and I flipped it. I was so determined. I strived in school. I worked extra, I had to work extra hard in school because I knew the odds that were against me. I was very, very adamant about making sure I graduated from middle school, high school, college and graduate school. I was very, very like determined to be better because yes, I was born with drugs in my system, but I made a choice. Like, so if I were talking to anyone who's maybe experienced being, you know, the experiences that I've gone through, I would tell them it starts with a choice. You have to decide to end the cycle. I believe that the cycle ended with my, my older sister. She was the first person to graduate from college out of all my siblings. And I want, I wanted to be like her. I wanted to help her end the cycle. And I did, but it started with a choice. I had to choose because some of my siblings, some of my siblings aren't, you know, where I'm at, you know what I'm saying? And some of my siblings, you know, they, you know, it's just taking them a little longer to get, to get to that place. But me personally, like I had to make a choice. I was not going to a believe the things that were said to me by my, by my family or by my friends or by whoever. So I just wanted to interject really quick. I don't know who this applies to, but can you please stop telling kids that they're going to be just like their parents, especially if their parents are making poor choices? Regardless of our belief system, I think most people understand that words have power. And when you say you're going to be just like your parents, you are putting those words into the universe and it sounds nothing like encouragement. It sounds like a curse. 
And there's a chance that what you're saying is abusive. Because guess what? Psychological or emotional abuse, it really is a thing. Now, if your goal is to get them to make better choices, then tell them that. Depending on the age of the child, of course, it is okay to say things like, I'm concerned because I want you to make better choices than your parents did. That is very different from, you're going to be just like your parents. And if it's something that you've said in the past, it's not too late to model good behavior. You can apologize. It started with making a conscious decision not to. Sometimes, um, foster youth, we um, we can fall into the trap of um, not wanting to be like our parents so badly that we end up being exactly like them and making the same mistake that they made. You do not want to be walking around here, walking around in the world blindly and angry, angry at your situation, angry at your circumstance that you end up falling into the trap that your parents fell into. Being born as a drug baby or a crack baby or whatever the case did not impair me, did not you know impact me. Yes, sometimes I, I, you know, it can have emotional right. um, impact on a person, especially when you don't have closure from your biological parents as to why they would do the things that they did to you. But as I grew up, I mean, the more I was faced with like insults and reminders and all this and that, I flipped it. And I know that I know it's easier said than done, but that was really my situation. And I know there are a lot of people out there who, you know, when people start to call you stupid or crack baby or tell you you're going to be like your parents, you start to believe that stuff. You really do. And so that's a real thing too, you know, but for me, for me, it was okay. Let me show you, let me show you, let me show you how I'm not going to be like the people who hurt me the most. So she was able to thrive despite being born with drugs in her system and being told that she would be just like her parents. I did really well in school, straight A's. Wow. I may have gotten a C and was <laughs> devastated. Oh. <laughs> Um, I graduated from a private Christian school and I started off in theater for the first two years, but then I ended up graduating with my, my bachelor's of arts in religion, youth leadership. And then I ended up going back to my first love, which is theater. And I got my master's in acting. I want to also point out that I had no help at first. I had no resources. I had no help going into to undergrad. You know, at first I had no like direction. Like I didn't even think it would be possible for me. But then I looked into like independent living program. For me, they kind of helped me through high school and then they helped me through college. So like paying for things, serving as, I had like an IOT worker who was like my mentor through, through college. I don't know what it's like now, but like the independent living program for foster, they, they literally serve foster youth, former and current foster youth, and they really got me through undergrad. And also the United Friends of, United Friends of the Children is a nonprofit organization that serves foster youth as well, former and current foster youth. And through their sponsorship, I was able to not only like get through college, but I was able to actually live, you know, because college is expensive. They were really, they served as a, a strong support system, employment, during the summer for foster youth, a lot of us, former and current foster youth, feel like we can't do better because we don't know that there is better there for us. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I discovered that there are people, there are organizations in place that serve me specifically because I come from such a background. Right. And it was just what I needed to get through 
undergrad. So by the time I by the time I graduated, I already knew. Oh heck yeah, I can go on to grad school. I have it in me. I, I graduated from you know this university, this private university, this small private university. I can definitely go on to grad school because I have that support. You know what I'm saying? And so foster youth need to know that. I have a friend who was a, who was in the foster care system his whole life and didn't go to college because he didn't think he could afford it. And I told him, no, there are systems, there are government funded systems that will help you through college. We just need to know that there are people and organizations who are willing to help us thrive. Let me tell you why her getting a bachelor's and a master's degree is such a phenomenal accomplishment. According to the National Foster Youth Institute, only about half of the youth in foster care end up finishing high school and less than 3% graduate with their bachelor's degree. With that in mind, we know that getting an advanced degree in grad school is pretty spectacular. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find much information about former foster youth in graduate school, but I've been told that it's less than 1%. If you happen to have any information about that, please let me know. Just, I don't know, reach out on social media or something because I am really interested. Sometimes financial aid is an issue, especially when tuition may be covered, but housing is not, especially during the summer. Sometimes it's having to deal with unresolved trauma, and sometimes it's all of those things while trying to navigate life on campus. Whatever the reason, college tends to be a struggle for a lot of our youth, but there is help out there. Some schools have programs specifically for former foster youth, for example, the Guardian Scholars Program. There are also programs for people who just need help getting used to college life. For example, there's a program called EOPS, or Extended Opportunity Programs and Services. They help students when it comes to you know, financial and educational challenges, and really a lot of other things that can just help students succeed on college campuses. One of the programs she mentions is the Independent Living Program, or ILP. Their goal is to help youth transition from the child welfare system into adulthood. So they provide things like life skills workshops, financial assistance, mentors, and even housing after emancipation. Eligibility typically starts at the age of 16, and depending on the state, it may last until the age of 24, or in some cases, 23. So if you think you may be eligible for ILP, contact your local social services department and ask about the independent living program. I asked her if she remembered the process of signing up for the ILP program. Here's what she had to say. My sister, she kind of like helped me through it because she too went through the independent living program. But when I was applying to colleges, I got accepted to a lot of schools. And I got into Cal State Long Beach, which was my dream school, through their EOP program, which is which serves minorities and foster, former foster youth. And I remember some way, somehow, that connecting me to the leading me to the independent living program because of the grant, you know, that the government offered after the Pell Grant. And um, I had so many questions and I, I didn't know who to go to to get my questions answered. And so I just did my own research and then I came across the independent living program and then come to find out I already had a case, a case right. number, a case worker, you know, and all I had to do is reach out to them. Um, exchange information, let her know what my goals were, let her know, you know, I'm going to college, I'm, I'm interested in doing this, and she needed to know all my expenses, 
so that they could cover it. And they did it. I talked with her about one of my previous positions as a social worker. At the time, my agency tried to reach out to emancipated youth who were eligible for ILP. We managed to provide services for some, but the reality was sometimes the youth were just sick of social workers and pretty much everything else associated with foster care. With that in mind, I asked her, what would you tell those youth, specifically the ones who are eligible for more services, but they avoid it because they're tired of the system? Here's what she had to say. You know, that was my issue. I didn't want to go through the process of getting to know somebody else who wasn't going to stick around because, you know, I had gone through, well, me and my siblings, we had gone through like so many different social workers. And for kids with abandonment issues to have to go through so many different social workers was a problem, especially for me. And so like when I got my ILP work, I said, look, I'm going to go through four years of college. I need to know that you're going to be here with me for four years. I do not want to go through the trauma of retelling my story and having to develop trust with another stranger. So let me know that you're going to be here. And she was there. She was there for me all four years. And so what I would say is don't be afraid to tell these people, these workers, what you need. If what you need is consistency, because it's all about mental health at the end of the day. Mental health and emotional health is the most valuable thing you can ever invest in, right? Because it's life or death. And think about it that way. I'm investing in my mental and emotional health. It's not just about getting into a school and receiving support for a school. No, it's about my mental and emotional health. I need to know that you're going to be here for the next four or five years of my life because I cannot keep going through the motions of social worker after social worker after social worker. If, if that's the case, I don't want to do it. And that was the conversation I had to have with my ILP worker. And so I would say, don't be afraid to ask for what you need. And just as much as these workers are getting to know you, you need to get to know them because our trust is not easy to come by. We've been abandoned. We've been neglected. We've been abused. We've been left behind. We've been ignored. We've been cast out by society to a freaking number, a, a, a freaking um, statistic. And so our needs are different than the average person. You know what I'm saying? We require a lot. And for someone who wants to go to school, First of all, I would, I would say, like, it's worth it. It's, it's totally worth it. Not wanting to deal with more social workers is not a good enough reason to miss out on such an opportunity to help you get through, through college. So we know that a lot of former foster youth frequently struggle with college, even with financial resources. So I asked her, what do you think made you a successful student? So when I got there... Uh, I was like one of maybe four or five black people there. Okay. And that was a whole other thing. And I was the only foster youth, former foster youth on the entire campus. And so I felt a sense of um, just, I, 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 it wasn't a good feeling. I just felt like really different and like I didn't belong. And so I reached out to the diversity. There was a woman, an African-American woman working in diversity because I wanted to leave the school. I wanted to just settle for, you know, junior college or community college or something else. Like, I just didn't want to do be there around a bunch of white people. And I was the only black person out of four or five. And I just didn't want to do it. And I was fostering you. I didn't want to have that. I felt like I was being watched. And, like, there was a magnifying glass on me. And, and people interacted with me differently. Because I feel like everybody knew I was fostering you. And that wasn't even the case, you know. But I felt that. 
I felt like that. And so, but I did end up reaching out to the, the diversity department, um, the head of the diversity department at the time was an African-American woman. And she became like a soundboard for me. She became like a mentor for me. And I connected with her and then I developed like, it became not about the fact that I was foster youth, but about the fact that I was an African-American woman with a story that that was probably different than anybody else on this campus. And I wanted to share that. And she kind of gave me the power to like, or empowered me to, um, to use my gifts, my artistic gifts, to kind of share my story. And from that, you know, they, uh, they more foster youth came in um in years to come and the african-american you know presence on campus got stronger there's a lot of programs that that was geared towards diversity and i was a i was i was very very unafraid to tell my story talk about how uncomfortable i was on that campus and how that campus being a christian university must do better with people who don't look like the majority and being a part of the diversity, being a being a mentee or, or being under the mentorship of um, that woman in, in the diversity program really, really helped me. So while there was no um, services for foster youth on the campus, we became a, a presence on the campus. Now, I know this may sound like a strange question with an obvious answer, but I wanted to get her opinion. So I asked her, why do you think college is important for former foster youth? Here's what she had to say. College is so important for us because we have a lot stacked up against us. Um, and it's just really, I, I don't think, I believe in the saying that no one can take education away from you. You know what I'm saying? No one can take that away from you. And the connections that you build in, in school, the lifelong friendships that you build in school, the support that you receive from going to school, it's unlike any other. As a former foster youth, I spent most of my life feeling alone and isolated and feeling less than who I actually am. And it wasn't until I knew that there was better out there for me and I, I, I chased after it with all that I had. And when I got it, I was unstoppable. And it took one person believing in me, believing that I was worthy of the help and the support and the love and the care and the time, one person, kind of get me on this journey um to of growth and and just knowing that there is that I am better I'm better than my circumstances I I am more than the foster care system I am yes I'm a product of the foster care system but that is that is not that is not all that I am mm -hmm. and going off to college going away being away being around different people, being exposed to different cultures and realizing who I am, that I carry with me still years later. I carry that with me. And I think, I think former foster youth and current foster youth just need, they just, we just need to know that that is, that is a possibility for us. Like that is it, so well within our reach. It's not something that's so taboo and impossible. We can do it. it. There are programs designed to make sure that we do it. We just have to make a choice. It starts with a choice. And that is the only thing we have control over is the decisions that we make. We talked about an issue that's been coming up more and more with the young adults that I talk with. It's the issue of not being seen 
or at least feeling as though they aren't being seen by their family members. Now, earning a college degree was a huge accomplishment, and I was curious, so I asked her, did your family treat you differently after you graduated? I got more attention. Like, when I tell you my adolescent years were some of the loneliest, scariest years of my life, I did not want to live. Mm. I did not want to be here. They were some of the loneliest, most isolated, because the difference between me and my siblings were I was the only one who was in the, a foster care, a foster home that wasn't my blood, my biological family. And I was there the longest. So I spent a lot of my adolescent years, my teenage years, my young adult years alone and isolated or feeling that way. And once I, it wasn't until I graduated from college, let's say that, like, it wasn't until I graduated from undergraduate college that, you know, people started to see me, that I started to feel seen by my family. She talked a little about her relationship with some of her siblings and how, even though many of them are spread out, they stay in touch through social media. I also asked about her parents and whether or not she's been able to connect with them. Here's what she had to say. My biological parents are not involved in my life, um, although some of my sisters and my brothers have a relationship with with um with them that I don't have. I'm getting ready to move. So it feels like this urgency to get closure to get my questions answered, especially because some of my other siblings have a relationship with them that I don't have. My grandmother was my mother. Okay. Absolutely. My grandmother was my mother in every way. My that she was my best friend, my superhero, and now she's my guardian angel. Mm. Um but even then there's there was still that void. There was still that that sense of, I want to know, I want to know the woman I come from. I want to know who she is. I want to, I want to know what she's been through so that I can have sympathy for her instead of anger and, and rage. Like, I want to know this woman, this woman who comes from my grandmother. And I love my grandmother with everything in me. So in spite of having my grandmother and my grandfather, I still craved, and I still to this day, crave that that motherly, fatherly experience, you know, because you realize when you're in relationships with other people, whether that's friendship, intimate relationship, or whatever the case, you start to see, you start to realize the need of a mother and a father. You start to see that so early on when you look to other people to fill that void and you're like, you can't do this for me because you're not my mother or my father. And so I'm at a place where I'm still trying to, I'm trying to accept the fact that you know, maybe they were not, maybe they're, they're, and this is a hard fact, a hard reality that I'm, I'm trying to accept. And I don't know who, who this can speak to, but I'm trying to get to, I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm realizing that maybe their purpose on this, on this earth, when it comes to me was not to be my mother, my father. Yes. Give, like, give birth to me. Yes. Bring me into this world, but to mother me and father me, I'm not sure that was their that was their purpose because they're still using and they're still, you know, not in my life. And right. so I'm 25 years old. I my life is happening, and I think I think the more I look for my mother and father and other people, the more I hold myself back because. It keeps me from moving forward. It keeps me from moving on. And it also keeps me from engaging with men and women um, 
friends, rom- romantic relationships. It keeps me from interacting with people in the way that I, I want to. As we started to wrap up, I asked her if she had any advice for biological parents. Here's what she had to say. I can only think of what I would say to my mother, my father. And if I could tell them anything, it would be, choose me. I, I promise you, I am enough. I am more than enough. I promise you. I came from you. I'm an extension of you. I will continue your legacy. I am more than enough. I am more than the drugs, the streets, the alcohol. I'm more than all these temporary substances that you that you use to numb whatever it is that you are going through. I promise you, I am more than enough. I would tell biological parents to choose their children. I can't explain it enough. The, the detriment it brings to a child to grow up without her mother. She, I grew up so lost and so confused. I did not know how to be a lady. I did not know what it meant to be a lady. I did not know what it meant to be loved and to receive love for the fathers. I do not know what to look for in a man. Till this day, I do not know what to look for. I, I want to be able to say, I, I want to marry someone who's like my father. I can't say that. And so, like, I can't express it enough. It is so traumatically painful to grow up without, to grow up without a mother and a father. It, it affects our developmental stages. It affects our performance. It affects our relationships with other people. And while we are growing through life, it, it, it kind of takes us a little longer to get there because we we don't have our, our parents. And so we need you. We love you. And I would also tell them to forgive themselves because a lot of the times, which I think this is what my situation is, my parents, is because my mother hasn't forgiven herself, it's hindered our relationship. Because my father hasn't forgiven himself for the mistake that he made, it's hindered our relationship. And because she doesn't know that she is, my mother doesn't, because my parents don't know that they are more than enough, that they are more than capable to beat this disease that is addiction, they like they choose to stay in it. And if they can only know some of us haven't gotten to the point where we forgive, we've forgiven our parents for the things that they've done. And that is okay because that is where you are in your process and your journey. And I do not want to rush that process at all. But when you do get to a point where you can actively say, I forgive my mother and my father, it's important to let them know that so that they can at least be encouraged a little bit to take certain steps to forgive themselves. But ultimately, choose, choose us. Choose, choose your children. Choose love and know that these temporary substances are just that temporary. These addictions are just that temporary. And like any disease, you can be healed. My final question was, what advice would you give to young people who are currently in the foster care system? I'm full of advice because I know what I wanted when I was, you know, 14, 13 years old. Um, a lot of us have experienced sexual assault. A lot of us have experienced our own addictions. A lot of us have experienced abuse and neglect. And at 14, I was sexually assaulted and I went through it alone. I remember wanting my mother so bad, wanting my father so bad and not getting that and believing the lie 
that I deserved what happened to me because I, I because of my circumstances. Um, and so what I would say to that foster that foster youth, that young girl or that young boy, you are enough. You are so much more than the system. I'm telling you, you are much stronger than the system. Um, the system and its odds has nothing on you. Um, if I can beat the odds, I believe anybody can beat the odds. And I had so much stacked against me, so much trauma stacked against me. And I made a choice. Make the choice to not only survive, right? Because a lot of us are focused on surviving. Make the choice to live. Make the choice to live. Surviving and living are very different. If you're only surviving, you're not living. And I encourage my former, my foster youth family to live, choose life, know that you are enough, know that you have power that is unique. No one has the power that we have. Um, and, and own your story, own it, tell it, because there are so many people who need to hear it, who need to hear what you've been through and that there's still breath in your body. Even if your circumstances haven't changed, the next time you take another breath, know that that is in itself is a gift and another opportunity for you to be better and do better and know that there is better out there for you. Go and get it because it is yours and you deserve it more. You deserve it more than you know. And so I love you. May you continue to love yourself and choose to live. Do not just choose to survive, choose to live. So that was our interview. And I have to tell you, there were times that I got goosebumps listening to this young lady. Now, obviously our interviews are confidential, but trust me when I tell you, she is doing fantastic work. And I wouldn't be surprised if she's on the cover of some magazine as the top 30 women under 30. Okay, we are going to move into the music. And I have to tell you, I am really excited to play a single from our newest featured artist. She sings, she draws, she's designing a clothing line. And I can't wait to see what the future has in store for her. This is Jamesa with Beautiful Day. Just to add. 
was Jamesa with Beautiful Day. We bought our single on iTunes and she would appreciate it if you did the same. Or you know what, you can gift it, give it to other people, especially youth who are currently in foster care. I want them to see that they can and should pursue their dreams of being an artist. You can also follow her on Instagram or Twitter at Jamesa, which is J-H-A-M-A-S-A. This is a great way to get good music and a great way to support our youth. Thank you for listening to Formerly Fostered. Subscribe to us by going to Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. Feel free to leave a comment or email us at info at greenpinesmedia.com. So until next time, have a good one.